welcome all of you to L.A. Louvre Gallery. I'm so pleased to see all of you here, lots of familiar faces and good friends present. So we set the tone for a very nice evening. This is a very a special uh, exhibition for us. All exhibitions are, of course, but in particular here. The association with Leon Kossoff began in 1979. So it's a very long history of working with this artist, who at that time, along with um, his contemporaries, had experienced a, a really a, a pretty much an overlooked body of work, let's say, by 1979. British art, particularly this group of painters, starting with Bacon, Freud, in no particular order, just by age, uh, Leon and Frank Auerbach, who are the four men associated with what Kitai was to label the London School of Painting, which many of you, I'm sure, have heard of. But at that time, his work was really not known outside the UK and uh, much admired by artists within Britain, but uh, we started the work to broaden the reach of the understanding of his work. Corresponded to the gallery's ethos, which when we started in the summer of 75, when we opened to the public in 76, we had the ambition and the fantasy at that time later to be realized that perhaps if we had anything to offer here, maybe we could contribute by bringing an awareness to Los Angeles-based artists in an international setting. In short, LA Art was viewed also in isolation. So our, our contribution perhaps would have been to broaden the reach of the understanding not only of artists perhaps abroad that we wish to bring here, but more importantly for us here, how is the art being made here seen in an international setting? So that was our goal and Leon along with others we later worked with, became a part of that sort of original mission statement, if you will. So, this is an artist who works very slowly, if any of you follow his work. That means through the whole life, there would be periods of four and five years between bodies of work. Meaning, he would work in the studio, through drawing, into the subjects he was interested in, excluding, if you will, topographic knowledge of those subjects, be it Christchurch, which you see here, a subject that he commenced much later, of course, in 1987, but was a subject that preoccupied him clearly until this moment. The painting was finished in 2000. There are about 16 paintings of varying sizes from quite small to just about the largest through the life's work. This uh, way of working means that he would accumulate images in the studio, constantly reworking the surfaces, scraping them down. If in the morning when he looked at the previous day's activity, it wasn't to his satisfaction, he would take the stain, the oil that was released into the board as a starting point for the next day's activity. And this has been the ritual through the life. As a result, the number of exhibitions that can be presented of an artist like this are very limited. For example, in five years, 
of this constant six-day-a-week activity, starting at six in the morning, finishing at six in the evening, um, would produce after five years through the life, on average, perhaps, and being arbitrary, it might vary from year to you know, period to period, but an average of, say, 25 to 35 paintings would survive his method of working. That was then a body of work. Drawing similarly, drawing every day, all day, and yet at the end of the day through editing, maybe 36 drawings would emerge and being, again, arbitrary. I remember one particular time we counted them, it's only 36 that I have five years. So this is, um, in a certain sense, not uncommon for that group of painters. They all worked in a not dissimilar fashion, although the lifestyles may have been wildly different. <laughs> so for us here, that 1979 beginning was an exhibition called um, This Knot of Life. It was a sort of a watershed moment for us in the gallery. It exhibited 10 artists, and it was a focused exhibition looking at British figurative painting at that, from our point of view, at that moment in time. And it was interesting on many levels because when I approached David Hockney, his first comment was, well, it's a great show, it certainly should be done. Politically impossible. And Derek, who's in the audience here, Bosho, is a British painter, knows exactly what that means. The inbred aspect of London's establishment was very rigid and had done a good job in putting everyone in there. The English like to do this, their right place, you know. So, um, but by taking it out of England, and I said to David, yes, it would be in England, impossible. But in Los Angeles, why would it be? And of course, it wasn't. So when you take them out of that context and you see them without all of the inbred, and all of us here in LA have our own understanding of what that means in our community, then it got looked at freshly, openly, with no prejudices. And it was very interesting to notice how Leon's work was frequently singled out at that time. Um, I'm not going to go on making a lecture here, but suffice to say, that's the beginning of our relationship. We did two exhibitions. I'll gallop on. You can ask questions later. One was in 81. He'd had his last show with Fisher Fine Art, I think in 77 or 78. He'd been without a gallery for a period of time, so there was a change in the pattern. And there was enough work, and he was so pleased by the response he received in America, he permitted us to do a second show in 84, which we shared as a body of, art, <coughs> a body of work with a gallery in New York, Herschel Nadler. And that was the beginning of really his American audience. Now that was our last painting show here at LA Louvre Gallery, 1984. So we have waited for this moment since then. Yes. There have been two shows in London since that time with Anthony Doffe, subsequently with the new partnership we formed with Annalie Judah Fine Art. There have been two commercial shows, one of current work in New York, the same show that was shown in London was shared. And then a survey show was done by Mitchell and Nash, our third partners in this endeavor. And that was shown a few years ago as a survey of early work, something that Lucy put together, very much something she wanted to do.
So this body of work has taken 10 years to accumulate. And in the intervening years, you might wonder what's he been doing. Well, <clears throat> he had, um, he represented Britain at the Venice Biennale. That show traveled to Dusseldorf and to Eindhoven, became the seed of the retrospective that was done at the Tate. He made two marvelous exhibitions here in LA, one in, both at the same time, one at the Getty and one at the LA County Museum. They were very different shows. All through the life, he has drawn from the old masters. Not uncommon in art history, of course, <clears throat> but in contemporary life, unusual. This group of artists frequently are concerned with the same issues. So the exhibitions we presented at the Getty, very much the initiative of John Walsh, to his great, great credit. He lent the landscape with the calm, which is a Poussin painting, to the National Gallery in London from the collection of the Getty. So that Leon, who wasn't much of a traveler, for example, each of the shows we've done prior to this, he would come for two days and go back, because his ritual in the studio was so important. These exhibitions, um, this, this particular body work was stimulated by a Poussin show that came to the Royal Academy. And he went every morning to the Royal Academy, took the first chew, 5.15 it starts, hoist himself up to London with his drawing boards to get in front of the paintings before the public came in at 10. There's a very good system, it is a system, that they have in the UK where the National Gallery, excuse me, the Tate, the Royal Academy, I don't know if any other museums do it. Maybe the Courtauld does, I don't know. John Murdoch maybe here can tell us. But <clears throat> the passes are to allow artists of that stature to go into these museums after hours, before or after. You could go in in the middle of the night. Freud is a well-known, after supper parties, he might get in his Bentley and drive over to the <laughs> National Gallery and take his friends to walk around and look at a particular painting he might like. But others would actually take the chance, and, the, and it's a very broad-based program. So I mention all this because it accelerated his preoccupation with the old masters, and out of it came a huge body of work. John sent the painting, as I've said, to London, and it was hung in the Poussin room, just so that Leon could draw from it. And out of that, came a body of work, the painting was returned. A painting that he had been preoccupied in the National Gallery's collection called Landscape of a Man Killed with a Snake, stimulus for many artists, even Richard Deacon, the sculptor, built a whole body of work around this one painting. This is two of five paintings commissioned by 18th century patron called Poisson, and they're all, except for two, I think, currently in public collections. So, then an exhibition was assembled. Victor Carlson, who was the curator, marvelous, I miss him, at the LA County Museum, had the imagination to put together an extremely comprehensive show of Leon's broader interests in the old masters, so the two are at the same time. And that, those two uh, shows went on to Australia, where it was shown at the National Gallery in Australia as a combined exhibition. They borrowed from many collections in Australia where his work is represented. 
And we made an exhibition at Louisiana Museum, a survey show which you can see on our website. It traveled to Lucerne. And our goal in these projects was to really transfer an interest in his work to the next generation, to younger critics, to younger writers, so that it had an ongoing life. So that's the prelude to what you're seeing here. And I'm going to suggest that this body of work comes forth from all of that. And perhaps in this panel discussion, we might get into the whys and wherefores of some of that. So that's my little introduction. Uh, we have four directors here at the gallery. And uh, Kimberly Davis, who's there, is uh, my colleague. And um, we collaborate also with Elizabeth East, who is there. And Lisa John, who is there. And these are the four directors. So if you have questions outside of this meeting, you can talk to, to them also. So I invited uh, Hunter and Pierre Pico, Hunter Droha Oscar Philip, and uh, Pierre Pico to join me this evening uh, for particular reasons. Hunter, as you know, is an author. She's a freelance writer. She's been a critic over the years, and she wrote an extremely interesting and provocative review of Leon's work in 1984. <laughs> and then subsequently, when the Getty and Lackner exhibitions took place, she had the great uh, distinction of being the first person to ever actually, for I can't remember how many years, interview him. 45. <laughs> 45 years, he hadn't permitted an interview. That has never been published, and she revealed tonight that actually she has a document of the interview that's many pages long. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'll read some of it tonight. Wonderful. So Hunter is here. She's an author. She's written three books, Full Bloom, The Art and Life of Georgia O'Keeffe, Modernism Rediscovered, The Architectural Photography of Julius Schulman, and the recent book, Revels in Paradise, the Los Angeles art scene in the 1960s, was published this year in July. My son, by the way, our son, I should say, is on the 60th page. He wrote me yesterday, so I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> so she's got lots of attention, even from Oliver. And um, currently, she's just become the commentator for KCRW's Art Talk. Not with, to be, my, with my colleague, Edward. Not to be confused with, or be competitive with Edward Goldman, our hero here, who also works with us. So the two of them have this uh, in common. And Edward is a there's many people here in the audience who I hope will participate because Edward's been following the work for many, many years. Pierre Picot, as we know, is a painter, a very exceptionally good one. Some call him a conceptual folk artist. I never thought of you that way, but I do. <laughs> well, that's the most important thing. That's all that matters. And his work's recently seen at Tom Janga Gallery in Los Angeles. He's taught for 22 years at the Fine Arts Department at Arts Center College of Art and Design in Pasadena. Now teaches at USC in the Department of Fine Arts. He's currently writing about the 18th century Austrian sculptor Amesha Smith. <clears throat> There's going to be a big project next year at the Getty involving this that you might make a note of. So I'm sure Pierre will be quite involved in that in the time. And um, he's working on a text on the work of Leon Kossoff. And I've had lots of good conversations over many, many years with Pierre. We've known each other quite a long time now, and was of course, not of course, but he was one of the first visitors to see the 1981 Kossoff exhibition. That's right. So, Edward. <laughs> 
And you did too. Good. My first visit to your gallery. Was to see that show? Yes. Excellent. So um, I don't know if Hunter, anything I've said in my introduction uh, has any credence, but how does it fit into your uh, observations of his work over these years, and particularly in relation to the shows you've talked about? Well, I've been reading some of... Uh, can you tell me or do I need this thing? They're all on. They're, they're all turned on. Sure. Do I need to use this? Can you, yeah. can you hear me? Yeah. It's better if you do better, that. Better if I do that. Okay. It seems a little echoey in here. Um, you know, what he talks about, and I'll, if I can, I'll go through and find some quotes in a moment, but he talks in this interview quite a bit about the, um, the three-dimensionality of his painting. Uh, that's one area that he fe seems to feel that, uh, that they have, that he... Well, let's back up again. What, what obsession that Leon Kossoff has that comes up over and over again in my interview and, uh, is that he can't draw and that his inability to draw drives him to draw frantically and maniacally and obsessively all the time. And as a result of that, he feels like he's gotten better <laughs> at drawing. But that, that feeling of being un, unable to draw well has uh, had a, a large impact on the way he paints because he doesn't feel that he paints the way traditional painters have painted where he's maybe done a drawing and then painted over it. Uh, he feels like he does the drawings on paper and then he paints in, in a way, an impression of that. And uh, I think that that's true, really. You can see that in, in these drawings somewhat. I mean, I think that they have such a kind of immediacy in a way as though the drawings kind of, and you can correct me at any point, because I'm only going from this interview, not because I've stood in his studio as you have and watched. You know. no, this, this is, it's a fresh point of view, so go. Is, is that true? Is that what your impression is? Yeah, so, you know. um, keep going. I want to hear the rest of what you say. <laughs> so, well, that, that, that is one thing he, he talks about, because uh, he... Uh, and, then, and then from that, I, I, we were talking at one point about uh, the relationship of dimensionality in his work, and, uh, and, and he talked about how he's always felt that the paintings had a lot of three-dimensionality to them, which I think is certainly, as I look from this distance, and from your view, looking back at, at Christchurch Spitalfields, uh, I think that really is certainly somewhat true. They have so much space in them. Uh, and something I might not have even noticed if I were standing right directly in front of them. Certainly the landscapes and the architecture pieces, maybe not so much the figurative works, which seem much more enclosed. Uh, something else that he talked about with me is that he wants these paintings to have the feeling of where he is, that he was less concerned with their accuracy of representation, which is quite clear if you see them. I mean, they're really uh, not to be compared to a photograph in any way, but that they have the feeling of the place and that he works them as he does his drawings deeply, overly, obsessively, that he works these paintings as pa Peter described over and over and over again. And that in doing that, what he's really trying to achieve is not necessarily the way the thing looks, but the way the thing feels. And you really do sense that if you've ever been to that Hawksmore church, I really, when I first went there, I just was so impressed to see the actual church because it was exactly the feeling of what I expected it to be based on the painting. And uh, 
he does talk also at length about what we've lost in, in the use of photography. And then he gets quite apologetic about that because he doesn't really want to be on the record slagging off photography. He'll get in trouble with Weston Neff if he does that. And uh, but he talks a lot about how he thinks that we've lost, that painters have lost the ability to see a non-photographic reality that we're so used to looking at images in photographic reproduction. And of course, we can always go back to David Hockney on this as well, but that they, it really has altered the way we are able to see. And that, that what, you, what, what he is, and, uh, and that he thinks it's kind of taken away a bit from our ability to, to see the way artists saw before the advent of photography. And, and if you want it in his own words, I mean, he's much more articulate than I am. After we let Pierre talk for a while, I'll dig up some quotes and read them back to you. Okay, great. Um, thank you, it's very good. Pierre, you, you had the opportunity to go and visit the sites, in fact, various right. subjects. Right. Um, was that with Leon? It was on my own, but I, I did speak to Leon for a short time. Uh, we had tea together. Um, but the thing that, that was in 97, and I gave myself a, a self-motivated project to go to London and uh, explore on foot uh, and with my camera uh, all of the sites that he had uh, painted over a lifetime. And uh, I went on, on walkabout, literally on walkabout. I had knapsack, tripod, and things like that. And I went to all these places following a map. Uh, and uh, it was a great, it was a great experience. And it wasn't. It started out as a trip that would document the work, and you had the work. I mean, you had the work, and then you had the photographs. But it became much more a, a, a self-meditation on why do painters paint the things that they paint. And uh, I remember. Uh, well, I first came across his work in 1979 in a reproduction in a magazine. Uh, of uh, some people sitting outside of uh, a tube station in North London. And I was really struck by that image. I, I just absolutely loved it. And uh, a few years later, I was, went to London, and I went to Kilburn, Kilburn Station, which is a, it, well, it's not a famous station, it's just a station in North London. And to me, it was a kind of iconic place, a, an iconic destination. And here I was in this rather dingy, drab, uh, spot with uh, a guy who was selling chocolates, Cadbury chocolates and cigarettes, and he had a little speaker stuck outside of his store blaring music and English talk shows and things like that. And I was looking at these people going in and out of the tube station, and I thought, is this the stuff of grandiose painting? And... Uh, what, what followed was years of, of looking at the work and living with one of his big drawings, actually, and then going to London. And, and what struck me, and still to this day strikes me, and I think these paintings of the, uh, the tree being supported by these buttresses, is that how great it is to see work that is absolutely personal. Uh, it's truly work that's meaningful because to the artist, it's his whole life. Uh, we talk about a guy who's obsessive, works six days a week, 12 hours a day, uh, is to my mind, to my mind, just from the bit of experience I had with him and uh, in writing and in meeting him, 
not a very social person, uh, somewhat closed off, uh, and closed off in his universe of these places that are the world to him. Uh, and, and I really sense that walking about uh, where I realized, um, see, what, what I got from these paintings was uh, I, came, I came to this country as an immigrant, as a little boy, and to me, those paintings were one person's experience that paralleled my experience or my recollections of places that were meaningful. And they had, uh, they had no universal meaning in terms of what they looked like, but they had personal meaning in the way they looked like. They, they were dark and, and drab and dreary and uh, animated and, uh, and, and they spoke to me in a way that, let's say, a Southern California, Southern California landscape didn't. It was, uh, it, was, uh, it was very European, it was very Eastern European. Even though I came from France, uh, uh, it had the darkness of an old, old city that had been built upon century after century, architectural styles over architectural styles, and the paintings themselves, the texture of the paintings, the colors were uh, physically echoing that kind of uh, building of a city, building of a place, and building of memories that he had. So it was layered and, 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 and compiled upon one on top of the other, and uh, it was, uh, and it has remained for me uh, to this day uh, just a very meaningful uh, relationship with, uh, with that kind of work. You know. I thought I might take a, a minute here in response to Pierre to put in context subject matter because this is something that uh, Pierre has alluded to. When the retrospective took place at the Tate, the frequent comment of critics at the time and in a way, perhaps the summary remark was that this life's work was a journey to the light. So when you start looking through catalogues of Leon's work, you'll see the dark paintings that have their point of origin, of course, after the Second World War. Of course, the journey to the light also had to do with the fact that London was, you know, every building in London in my childhood, I'm born in 1948, was pitch black. <laughs> You know, that had been the accumulation of uh, um, um, what we used to call London fog. But of course, after the uh, Clean, Act, Clean Air Act of 1961, uh, we didn't have any more London fog, curiously. Uh, and then they uh, sandblasted all the buildings. So suddenly, actually, the light was in the city by virtue of uh, them being restored. So the journey to the light might not have much to do necessarily with his own psychology or his own attitude towards paint, per se, but responding to the city is a London painter, for sure. Now, normally there would be a nude in here, too. And in the last 10 years, he hasn't drawn or painted from the nude. Obviously, now at 80, approaching 85 in December, uh, the last 10 years has also been a change of life and a gradual depreciation of energy. So he hasn't been as engaged, and what he's done is look more territorially to his internal world and the internal world of Peggy, his wife, and John Lassore, who also is this uh, man in a wheelchair, in the double portrait, rather exceptional painting in the middle of the room, I'm going to suggest. 
And um, Peggy has been the subject of paintings in the past. Some of you will see those paintings. Nude on a red bed is him painting Peggy. This tree going through its gradual demise is a tree simply in the garden, a cherry tree, that had gradually started to end its life. And as he began to feel his own fragility, it became a subject of intense scrutiny. Clearly, they kept it alive, as all of us who love things do, properly enough, in this case, with these uh, Japanese-style uh, crutches. But Christchurch is an evocation of childhood. This church is designed by Hawksmoor. And when you go around London, St. Pancras Station is another Hawksmoor uh, piece of architecture, for example, just been restored. This is a classic building. Um, I'm just trying to remember now the name of the author who wrote a rather good book on Hawksmoor. Yes, Peter Ackroyd wrote a very good book recently, about 10 years ago, actually. Yeah, on, um, uh, on Christchurch, but on Hawksmoor. It's called Hawksmoor. It's well worth reading. This is a church that exists in Shoreditch, which is in the east end of London. And Shoreditch is close to the White Chapel. And this is a, an area which has been kind and has received immigrants, new immigrant populations since the Huguenots, actually. So at the turn of the century, it would have been where Eastern European Jews from Poland and Russia primarily would have come and settled. Uh, Nick Sorota's mother was a great uh, activist in the Whitechapel area, the director of the Tate. And, um, and today it would be Bengalis, for example. So this is, a, uh, this is a church where, as not a practicing Jew, but a, um, uh, an ethnically connected to the community Jew, this would have been some verboten. This would be somewhere, as a child, you'd be told you can't enter. So imagine this church, when you look through the 16 subjects that he's painted, there's another Christ church over here. Um, the angles and the drawing activity that uh, Hunter was referring to is that of a childhood memory of looking up. Imagine if you're looking up as a child and you have this building you're not allowed to go into and it's fenced off and it's that took him till he was 60 years of age to be able to paint. Peter, can I say one thing? I wish you would. <laughs> as, as a kid, I think what he was struck by, which is what I was struck by when I went to see this church, you can't tell by these paintings. I expected this church to look like this. It's the spire. The spire is huge. It's a needle that just juts out into the sky. I mean, it's gigantic. And he's foreshortened it to fit inside... I mean, if he had to do this painting the way it really looks, he would have to add another canvas, right, to put the spire. Absolutely. And I think as a kid, he must have been just blown away to see this thing in front of him, you know, and it's so clean at the same time. And I think it, it's just like a, a, a standard by which he, he, he gauged his whole life because there were all these other places, like the swimming pool and, and all I, these. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he returns to this in, as we know from the date of the painting, in 1999-2000, um, but that board would have been opened up probably in 1990, and then didn't think it was successful, scraped it down, put it to one side, and then 10 years would have passed, and maybe after that painting, he decided to revisit the memory of this board. 
So these things are part of the life that you're reflecting upon and perhaps what he shared with you in your interview. But not, but not his biography, but not biographical in any kind of uh, sense of, of his, he doesn't want to talk about his family or his own personal past or his son or any of the things that happened to him. Uh, so they're very personal paintings, but in a very uh, removed way also, I think. Uh, interesting, because we know he's had difficulties in his personal life. And, uh, and in fact, what I what struck me about those reviews of the Tate Show is how many of them referred to his paintings as depressing. Like that depression, who thought depression could be so uh, rewarding in a way. Uh, these are among the, are very light. These are particularly light. Do you, do you cost think, of paintings, uh, in my experience. Do you think looking at Poussin introduced a lightness to the surface? What, what, what made the change, do you think? It's interesting, because he says that he thinks of them as two different bodies of work, painting these paintings and the paintings he does from, the, from old masters, which always have to be done in front of the old masters. He cannot work from a book. He cannot work from a reproduction of a Poussin painting. He has to be there. And that's where he talks about the three-dimensionality of painting versus the two-dimensionality of, 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 of a photograph. That he can't feel what the image in the photograph offers. He can only feel it if he's in front of the Poussin paintings that we discussed earlier. And as you know, he was supposed to paint the calm Poussin, but he had to paint the active Poussin because there was nothing happening in the Kampusan. He had to look for a little action. And, uh, I, uh, and he talks so much about his relationship as well with Cezanne, who I think is really the more obvious parallel so. uh, in terms of paint handling and in terms of the repetitive subject matter, you see. Particularly in that cherry tree down there, for example, in the far right. Yes. On the wall. It's well, and just the repainting of the cherry tree over and over and over again, always kind of just. And uh, he taught in the interview. He talks about how all Cezanne paintings are unusual, but some of them work better than others. And and I think that's kind of true of his paintings. They're very unusual paintings. You know that by rights, many of these paintings kind of sh really. Uh, I mean, the the figures are always a bit uh, blocky. Yeah. I mean, they're not. They're not in any, they really reveal that part of him that says he cannot draw. You know, there's nothing anatomically kind of, you know, you know perfect about them. So, uh, anyway, so I think I, anyway, I've lost my train of thought. Back to Pierre or Peter, go ahead. Yes, please. Uh, Hunter, I am very fascinated by what you just mentioned about his connection with Cezanne because from the first time when I've seen this exhibition a few days ago and today, especially this gorgeous painting, it's Cezanne, but for me it's not his repetition or obsession with the same subject through the lifetime, but it's a reduced palette of Cezanne. It's his blue and green and gray, but on a much, much more pale version. and. Uh, Pierre, when you are talking about how strange that this church, which going with this spire into the sky so high, so dramatically, all his paintings are not for me communication with the skies, but it's just there, so anchored with the earth. It's about the ground 
everything unbelievably grounded. He almost never deals with the sky in his paintings, physically or psychologically. It's just unbelievable, it's earthy. And as a former archeologist, I look at his paintings and I always look at them as archeological site that I almost with my eyes, like with my hands, just digging uh, through and going deeper and deeper and deeper. Did I just answer? Uh, no. I, I would like to add one. It's very good observations, thank you. And by the way, anyone on the floor that wishes to ask, please, and it's, we have people in the audience here who are much more qualified to speak than we are. So look forward to uh, hearing Surely you. not. <laughs> now, yes. I had a question about the technique, the layering. I noticed on the sides, I mean, it looks like he's working with a, a board or even it could be layers of paint itself. You know, it's very choppy and colorful on the sides. I just wondered what the material was. And well, he's working with oil paint, but often your observation about the edges is because he might remember, for example, in working on this painting, that there's a board somewhere down in the mass of paint. Imagine every day you're scraping down the paint. Where does it go? It goes to the floor. So now you're frustrated about a picture you can't work. Can you imagine what happens in this room? You know, he doesn't like the painting, so what does he do? He throws it somewhere, or whatever he does. And later he remembers, well, somewhere over in that corner is this paint, so he digs it up. And so the edges are often a reflection of the, um, of the history of that board, less to do with what you're seeing on the surface. What you see on the surface of a painting is probably, believe it or not, three hours of painting and being arbitrary. You know, it's not as if he paints a section, scrapes down another and leaves and builds it back again. It gets entirely scraped down and starts again. So the actual final act is one gesture of, and there's no way he can possibly know how it happens. I mean, how does one man who has no studio assistant, the studio, by the way, is about the size of this area of the room. <laughs> so how does he physically, you know, he's got to lift that thing. Needless to say, he's had three hernia operations. Um, so he goes back into a memory and then he builds it back again. So that's what you're, that's what you're, you're seeing. Uh, can I say something? Yeah, I wish you would. You talk about Freud's towels. I, I'll tell a little story. Um, I was in London some years back. Um, well, he was 97. Uh, when I was on this walkabout, and I stayed at a friend's house who lives down from Kilburn. I also happened to know uh, Kossoff's uh, address in Wilsden, which is the next stop over. And one night uh, after dinner and running around, I said, let's go to Kossoff's house. Uh, I want to look in his trash can. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you never know. I mean, Bad boy. <laughs> And my friend just pulled over and made a U-turn, and she's idling. I run out, and there was trash, and I knew when the trash day was. was. And I just went, choo, choo, choo. picked up trash bag, took the whole thing out, and shoved it into the car. It smelled of high heaven. It was really bad. And she said, what's that? I said, oh, just drive, just go. <laughs> it was like midnight. Next morning, and I dumped it in the front yard of my friend's place, and next morning I go out thinking, Hmm, what can I find here? A couple of drawings, you know, unsigned, wrinkled. Nah, nah, nah. It turned out it was all, speaking of towels of Lucian Freud, it was all newspaper 
that he uses, and I mean, it was all greasy and turpentine newspaper that was covered with junk and that he uses to, to wipe. Nothing useful for me, you know. Uh, By the way, we, we have had a number of incidents where auction houses will say, well, where did this come from? We said, we don't know. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> but, you know, in the old days, I mean, the old days, some years back, this is nothing. To me, these paintings are really thin. They're extremely thin. Uh, what I fell in love with years ago was how goopy and thick and tortured, literally the, the surface was tortured and sculpted. And I absolutely loved that, the, the, the matter that was uh, on the surface. We, um, uh, it's good to um, all of you, if you haven't had a moment prior to this uh, discussion, go up to our far corner of the second floor here. We have a, a group of drawings and prints from the old masters by Leon set up in this room, and that might give you some further perspective on some of these uh, conversations. In addition to the cherry tree, I just want to mention John to you, because Peggy is his wife and long-suffering and marvelous, and <laughs> thank God she's around, because I can't imagine what a life of would be like with Leon in that house. I've never once called that house, by the way, since 1979, and not had them be home. <laughs> Just to give you a perspective on things. So, uh, John uh, suffered from <laughs> John suffered from polio uh, at the age of 14. That's not entirely uh, relevant to this presentation, except to say that he is the son, now he's, um, he's, John is probably maybe four or five years younger than I am, but John is a painter and he is the um, one of two sons from Helen Lasor. Now Helen Lasor is a name I'm sure none of you have heard, but Helen Lasor was the wife of Sickert's, door, uh, Sickert's dealer. And so, therefore, John is a related person to Sickert. Sickert, by the way, was the artist who was also accused of being the um, London Ripper, <laughs> Jack the Ripper. But <laughs> then he. Pause just a minute. Helen Lesseur was the wife of Sickert's dealer. Mm. Well, then how was she also the father of these boys? Mother of these boys, rather. The mother of these boys. She was the mother. She was the mother of the boys yeah. by Sickert's dealer. Who Correct. was who? I forget his first name, but, uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, when he died, okay. she was faced with a choice. Uh -huh. She had studied at the Slade. She was a painter, an aspiring painter. So she had to make a decision. Obviously, they had a, a fairly comfortable life with Sickert's uh, estate. Would she continue to be in the family trade, dealing in Sickert? Or would she take a more adventurous path, or more adventurous another kind of path, and would she work with artists that she admired of her generation and that were around. And so she took the latter course, and she formed the Beaux-Arts Gallery in 1947-48, the year I was born. And she was the first person in London to show. I'm not sure she showed Bacon, but she supported the work, and but she certainly showed Freud, Auerbach, Kossoff, and a whole host of artists. She is really the foundation of the London School. Yeah. 
And uh, so John grew up in that company. Therefore, Leon, who was one of her first artists, he showed at the Beaux-Arts Gallery until it closed in 65. It got taken over eventually by the Marlborough. They sort of sucked it in and, and, then, and then, as the English loved to do, celebrated her life after they had changed it. And um, so they went on to represent uh, all the same artists. But uh, John, um, um, uh, again, is a painter. He sits for Leon, and the only reason to mention all this is that he, they draw from each other. Uh, John comes every Tuesday, and they spend the day working together. They, he stays over for a meal, and that's how it works. Sitters will come on a regular, it's expected. You know, Frank Auerbach says, Jake, his son, I expect you to be here on Friday at 11. Rest assured, Jake's there at 11 every Friday. And so that's how these rituals um, get underway by way of subject, additional subject matter. Sorry. There's one aspect about the paintings that are very interesting. They look very freely done, but they're, they're highly structured. There's no escape from his paintings. The painting in front of you is actually very contained. In fact, it's, in, it's contained in a diamond. Triangulation. Triangulation, and also you've got the lead in with the steps. And the painting on the left here, uh, the, the, the woman, uh, you know, any artist knows that if you have a, a, um, a figure looking out of a painting, it, the painting, you tend to get out of the painting, but what he's done there, he's put this light, dark line of red, red, contained it, so it stops you going out. The same, ha the same thing happens with the right-hand painting over there. Um, the, 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 the figure is looking out, but he stops that by putting red and white stripes down. So, and they, they all have this thing. Um, the other thing that's very interesting, I think, is what an interesting colorist he is in very different things. This has been mentioned before, this blues and these, um, in this painting. And the other thing that's interesting, I think, is in this painting, it's very solid, it's, it's a structure. And it's very different in feeling from the painting here, which is very much pastoral, and it's, it's, you know, it is the countryside or, or, or vegetation. Um, going back to also the, the, the structure of the painting, that painting is contained in a diamond. This is just a diagonal, two diagonals. It's, it's a square with two crosses, you know. And if you start looking at these paintings, they, you know, they reveal themselves. They come out of drawing I th yeah, I think you have, well, I don't know, uh, I guess, yeah, as you said, he did, does the drawings before. Oh, yes, oh, yeah, oh, yes, yeah. Thank you, Derek. Did you find some quotes that you... Uh... I love what you said. Yeah. That was really good. He talked about whether he was working from a masterpiece or working from a model, since you were talking about the model. He says uh, that... Uh, he says that uh, he really works from a sense of anxiety, you know. Uh, and all uh, he said, all I can say is that the, that the greater the anxiety to make something happen, the more likely it is going to happen. And I said to him, uh, so you're not, uh, so go with the flow is not your mantra, is what I said to him. He said, no, with alarm. I'm not at home in L.A., really. <laughs> <laughs> 
He said, I experience as much anxiety in front of these pictures, meaning the Poussins, as I do in front of a model. It's just part of me, and I'm glad I've got it, really, or else I wouldn't be driven, I suppose. Knowing is what a painter doesn't. The capacity to know is what the painter hasn't got. He works in order to know. But when the work, is ac when the work actually happens, he still doesn't know. So he goes on to something else. That's true. Very interesting. There's a, a very, um, Hunter had this privilege, and it's uh, a significant one. Uh, when the um, exhibition happened at the National Gallery in London that uh, Colin Wiggins put together in the education department, remarkably, uh, and I don't even know to this day how that happened, John Snow is a British uh, interviewer, often he interviews every politician on the face of the earth, but much, uh, much admired by um, uh, London and English people. Very little involvement with art in his uh, coverage. But he really had an experience with Leon's work at the National Gallery, and remarkably, Leon permitted him to be interviewed by Jon Snow on film, furthermore. So if you go into our website, Leon and the National Gallery gave us permission to post this uh, interview. And I think as of uh, last week anyway, uh, Jeff, I don't know, we're up to what, 2,800 hits on YouTube? So people have been waiting for such a long time to hear his voice, it gets constantly uh, called upon uh, for more information. So, um, now, are there other questions on the floor for our group here? Yeah. Can I just go around? The first hand went up. So, Hunter, uh, you're talking, the artist is talking, and you're in a dialogue with him. Uh, did he say anything about when he was seated in the National Gallery in front of the Poussin paintings, each one of which had a carefully chosen frame? But we're seated in a room without, uh, with pictures that, without a single frame. Did he say anything about his approach to framing, his obvious rejection of the idea that a, a painting should have a frame? Interesting. He did not mention framing at all. He did talk about, uh, that was very important to him, that relationship with working from Poussin. He talked about it, uh, I asked him about when he go, working back, going back to old masters and working from them, not just Poussin, but Manet and Degas. And he said, I said, why go back to those painters, you know, now that you've got a mature style of style of your own, why would you go back and work from them? And he said, this is a very personal reason. I don't think it's anyone else's reason. I go back because I have a terrific sense of feeling that I can't draw, that I have to learn to draw all the time. My first understanding of these paintings as a young student was that they were made by people who were drawing all the time they were working. They weren't made as we were taught by processes of sketching, drawing, finished drawing, and painting as we were taught. That all didn't make sense to me. I felt especially before photography was invented, people were working and that drawing was a part of the way of thinking about life. When they used to paint, they were working as draftsmen with paint. I go back to these things because they stimulate my desire to draw. So I asked him, is it learning about learning how to draw? And he said, no, I think that's the only way one can learn to draw, by following the things that stimulate you in that way. And then he says, I don't like the word stimulate, though. <laughs> 
He also talks about looking at old master paintings that he's known all of his life, and how as he gets older, the paintings, his relationship with the paintings change. He says, uh, that's a marvelous thing about growing old. You lose certain things, but you gain others. A whole new world sometimes opens up for me when I look at a Rubens or a Goya. I see it all quite differently from how I saw it five years ago. It's not the same picture. That's like going to a concert and listening to a new conductor for the orchestra. And he does talk about the black paintings, pictures by Goya, and how they seem much more relevant to his personal experience as he gets older, which makes sense. Um, this is an opinion question. Kossoff had great respect for the old masters, um, Franz Halls and Rembrandt, and of course Poussin and Cezanne. To what extent is he a continental artist, and to what extent is he an English artist? Uh, I defer to Peter on that one. Well, that's a very good question. Um, some people would argue that um, Frank Auerbach is a Central European uh, painter, although he hasn't lived in Europe since Auschwitz when he was nine. They both studied under David Bomberg, which was the other side of the hemisphere. William Coldstream would be teaching a certain kind of academic drawing, basically revolving around mapping an image. And perhaps what Auerbach and Kossoff have in common with Bomberg, they're drawing from a, a more evocative, emotional place. Um, we're all immigrants. I don't know if you talked about it, but I see perhaps the limitations of the painter. And I wonder how his limitations come into play. He said that he could not draw, and he wanted to draw. This limitation is the fact that today we're sitting here looking at him, because he, he manifested something other than drawing that is the essence I think of what we witness is an attempt, Gaston said, that the question is if art today is possible. And he knocked, he, he, he put his whole life to prove that it is possible. And we witness that struggle today. And uh, I hope one day, I, I'm a painter, but I hope one day I'll be able to, to draw the way I, I, I heard today. <laughs> to paint the way I heard. Very sensitive, good. Can I say something? I think to say, for somebody like Leon Kossoff, who's been working all these years, for somebody like that to say, I can't draw, smacks of false humility. I don't believe that one moment. Or to say, I have difficulty with painting, and yet he's had a lifetime of painting. I, I, I don't believe that. Um, I think maybe it comes from a slight uh, inferiority complex. Uh, I, think, I think people, like I remember I was a kid, I was at college, and uh, people would come around when you're drawing and they'd say, great drawing, I really like your drawing. And I'd go, oh, no, no, not me. You know, you know? And, uh, and then I saw these drawings up on a wall and I thought, wow, if, if that was my drawing, I'd really love it. But because it's me, 
I feel really bad about my drawing. And I learned that false humility was not the way to go. You know, if you do a great thing, you do a great thing. You say it. I, I think it's a cultural thing uh, to feel that smallness in the face of the grandiosity of, of your output. Um, in answer to the other question, I feel like, yeah, he's a British painter who wants to be a European painter, who is a, an international painter. But people always, I think, work from a small place to a bigger place. Uh, I think that's the aspiration. And maybe it keeps you on the safe side to feel that you're not living up to, to uh, other people's expectations or other people's um, PR of you. Uh, I think that neither Lucian Freud or Leon Kassov virtuoso draftsmen. I perfectly understand when you're quoting him what he means. His painting tells me about fight, about the struggle. Uh, for example, de Kooning, he could draw like an angel. And when he just been fighting with his ability to be a virtuoso, he didn't want to be a virtuoso, he created his best works. So for him, I don't think it's humility only. He really struggled, and we have an absolutely brilliant result of his struggle. Um, we've come through the hour of the talk, but we're not going to break it now. If any of you need to go off and drift, do, do be sure to take in, if you haven't, there's a room upstairs of drawings and prints that might put some of this in a broader uh, context. But Alan, you had a question? Uh, yeah. Um, regardless of my age, I've come here to learn. I've never been a great fan of Kossoff's, although I've been looking at him for 50 or 60 years. I've always found him, those adjectives already used tonight, muddy, uh, wishy-washy, um, somewhat dull with his colors and everything else. So it's been very interesting to me to hear people with a different sensibility. But as I was looking at them with Derek and asking Derek to give me more info about them and so forth, I began to realize that there's a sort of sensibility up there, particularly on the couple there, of a very Jewish sensibility being going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years and possibly immigrated to East London on top of it. And I see it in all the, and then I look around and I see it more or less in all the faces. There is this, and as Goldman said, I get the feeling of this graying down all the time into the earth. There's no taking off, you know, and um, aspiring to something else or even investigating something else. It's very, inward and contained in here. That's how I feel. But I'm delighted to come and hear all these viewpoints. Well, we always appreciate your point of view. I think the Catholic Church has it tied up. The Jesuits say, give me a child until they're seven and they're mine for life. So I think all of us walking wounded are dealing with the rest of our lives with the first seven years. That's also what I say, by the way. <laughs> what you mean with product design? So. <laughs> I, ju I just wanted to ask, it, it occurred to me learning about Leon this evening that he would have been a teenager um, when he went off to war. He was in the Jewish Fusiliers, I think, if I understand it, and served in Europe. And 
the interesting thing for me is the the, the, the darkness of his of his early work, uh, and this transformation, as you say, into into the lightness. Whether he was he's a very uh, private man. Whether you discovered any inkling of his his wartime experiences, being born in North London, moving a couple of times, I gather, to around North London with all the bombing, etc. Whether his depression. It sounds to me as if he was perhaps depressed, I may be wrong, whether that has a bearing on his painting and of course his lifetime of, of change into his current work. Just a thought. That's a good one. Any thoughts on that? How could it not? How could it not? Yeah. And, and he also, he, you know, his, he has a son who died young uh, yes. as well. Tragic, tragic, lo tragically lost his son, uh, not out how old Paul was, but you know, in his twenties anyway, when he died, and so he he's had sadnesses in his life. He's had setbacks in his life, and and clearly he is uh, an artist whose only reason, who is really only interested in making art. I mean, he doesn't seem to have a great uh, social life. <laughs> I did want to say to Derek before we close that he does say. Uh, it took him years, he says, it took me years before I was able to say, I'm going to compress what I'm actually experiencing in front of this picture into that particular shape. So you're exactly right. He's compressing the experience into an actual shape. So I want to thank all of you for coming. Um, I, I want to make one announcement. We've been working the last couple of years and some of you that are on our mailing list will be receiving, if you haven't already today, you will tomorrow, this little booklet. And what this little booklet does is to guide you into our new website we have designed. And in that website, for good or bad, every show we've done since 1976 is documented. You can navigate the system by museum, by artists, by, there's all kinds of artist profiles in there. You can, we've used this uh, moment for Pacific Standard Time to put our history into perspective. And when you think of someone like Don Suggs, who's one of my loyalist friends and uh, most important artists that we work with, Don and I have a history that goes back to January 1976. So, thank you all for coming. Do take in upstairs. Ask the director's question. Thank you. <laughs>